Feminist Perspectives, a podcast about feminist film discourse, hosted by Die Regisseurinnen, Association of Solidary Filmmakers, and FC Gloria, Frauenvernetzung Film. Episode 1, A New Feminist Grammar in Film, Feminist Practices and Gaze Theory. In the following discussion, three perspectives from different métiers in the industry meet, directing, cinematography and film theory. The speakers are French writer-director Céline Siama, known for films such as Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Girlhood and Petite Maman, the Austrian cinematographer Christina A. Meyer, responsible for the Oscar-nominated film Quo Vadis Aida by Yasmila Spanich, and the British author and feminist film activist Saul Meyer. Questions are posed and experiences shared. Are we brainwashed by dominant media forms? And what can we do about it? And what is a feminist gaze? This talk was recorded as part of a two-day forum on feminist perspectives held at Vienna Stadtkino in November 2022. Welcome to Feminist Perspectives. Uh, actually, we're really, really excited that so many of you are here uh, for this opening event of our two days program. Uh, this is our second public event of Die Regisseurinnen, and uh, we are a cooperative of mostly female, actually women directors based uh, in Austria, and we have a primarily focus on um, yeah, supporting and inclusive feminist web network. Uh, that we have to build to actually change this film industry. So this event, Feminist Perspectives, grew out of a cooperation of Die Regisseurinnen and FC Gloria, um, Women Film Network, and is supported by Doherty, uh, Die Produzentinnen and uh, Golden Pixels Cooperative. Uh, we, the organizing team, Elisabeth, Ulrike, Susie, William, Laura, Malis, and myself, would first of all like to thank our international guests um, for coming to Vienna and uh, for these two days and our Vienna-based guests, thank you for accepting our invitation. And, and of course, a huge thanks to Victoria Pelzer and this wonderful collaboration with the Stadtkino. Uh, we hope to see many of you in the next two days. Um, of this forum uh, for discussions, emotions and ideas to revolutionize film and film industry. And now we hand over to Malis and Laura. So to give you a bit of context, um, this event was born out of, um, of an event we organized at the Diagonale earlier this year, uh, which some of you might have attended. Um, and it was inspired by uh, Elif Batuman's interview with Celine Siama in the New York um, in the New Yorker earlier that year, uh, titled "A Quest uh, for a New Grammar of Feminist Film uh, in Cinema." In this interview, uh, Celine looks back at her work and re-examines how how far uh, we've been in. in impregnated by the male gaze, um, and how much masculine culture has shaped the way that we tell stories. 
So, inspired by this, we decided to take the opportunity to redefine our perspectives and motivations as filmmakers and ask ourselves what kind of films do we really want to make? How has androcentrism imprinted on us? Are we just mimicking what we've been fed? Which codes and working practices do we need to develop to make truly feminist films? And hence, how can we develop a new cinematic language? Um, the modest panel that we, made, that we did in April only just scratched the surface of a pretty fertile discussion, so we're extremely excited today to be able to share a much more comprehensive program with you over the next two days and delve deeper into questions um, that emerged from the first session. So we're going to mix it up a little bit this time. Um, we've invited three different panelists from three different metiers with varying perspectives. Uh, each panelist will receive three different questions and will decide for themselves when to pose which question to themselves and to another. We consider the audience today to be a big part of this discussion, uh, so we really encourage you to get involved. Yeah, and in order to make this possible, we have two audience liaisons, uh, Nora Friedl and Elisabeth Scharang, who are there at both sides of the room. They have mics ready um, that they will hand to you in, so they can facilitate a dialogue between the audience and the stage. Also, if you prefer to ask your question in German, don't hesitate, Laura and I will translate this to English then. Um, yeah, we put a lot of love into creating this program, this two-day program, so we really encourage you to take advantage of it and like really go and see also the film screenings afterwards. And we come back uh, for another panel discussion tomorrow at um, 5.30 uh, with a focus on queer film aesthetics, identity and representation. Um, we also have um, a book table downstairs facilitated by O-Books, and we would yeah, welcome you to uh, have a look um, at supplementary literature that is related to the symposium or to the forum. Um, we would also kindly ask you not to take videos of the discussion, but we will make an audio recording of the whole panel and we will put it online. So if you would like to listen back to it or share it with colleagues, feel free to do that um, from the audio recording. So, now it's time to welcome our guests to the stage, and I'd like to start with So Meyer. So Meyer, welcome. So Meyer is an author, curator, <laughs> bookseller, and organizer based in London, UK. Um, their last publication is called a Nazi word for a Nazi thing, and focuses on queer films, bodies, and fascism. Um, it's an essay, a book-long essay. Um, so it's also curating programs with the queer feminist collective um, Club de Femmes, and uh, they are campaigning with the initiative Raising Films, which aims to improve the conditions for parents and carers in the film industry. So, welcome, Sonia. Our next guest is Christine A. Meyer. Christine Meyer, welcome to the stage. <laughs> Why 
while Christine Meyer works mainly as a cinematographer, she does not consider herself as a technical eye, but is really always very involved from the beginning of developing the films, also in terms of content. She has worked since the beginning of the career, often with Barbara Albert, and um, she's also been working with Yasmina Spanic, but um, Jamie Babbitt, and also visual artists like Amy Siegel. And uh, some of her recent um, famous films um, that she worked on include Barbara Albert's film Licht, Light, or Yasmina Svanich's um, Quo Vadis Aida. And finally, we're delighted to welcome Celine Siama. Celine's films have been making waves ever since her debut feature, Water Lilies, came out in 2007. Followed by Tomboy, Girlhood, and a portrait of a lady on fire, which she herself has referred to as a manifesto about the female gaze. Apart from her prolific work as a director, Celine has also written screenplays for directors such as André Téchinet, Claude Barras, and Jacques Audiard. Her work radically embraces the idea of women's autonomy and questions heteronormativity. She is not only revolutionizing the way women are portrayed on screen, but is also very politically active off screen. Celine uses pronouns she, her. Please welcome wonderful Celine Siama. <laughs> We're going to kick things off by a first question and then hand over to you guys. So, in line with tonight's program, our first question is, are we brainwashed? <laughs> we, you just need to get your mic. <laughs> No, no, I, I was thinking a lot about this question, are we brainwashed? And I think really, I mean, if I want to answer the question for myself, I am brainwashed. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, you know, because so when I grew up, you know, I mean, we are so much uh, influenced by the things we saw on screen, on TV, what we read in, in books. Or, so I'm completely brainwashed. And... Also, when I was young, there was this hunger, you know, to see myself on screen, or, you know, to, to read about me or whatever. And, of course, there were no stories about me or women whom I know. So I identify with the male characters. So I was thinking, you know, my first book was Robin Hood, and Marianne was very boring. So the only thing which was left was Robin Hood. And so... In a way, for a long time, I identify with something which is not me and which is stuck. And I think I have to learn to think differently. I try, but I still know that it's nearly not, you know, it's not done. So. I think Christine is right. I think... Um, these big structures like cinema and literature, they, they do shape how we think and they're designed to make us passive to some extent, to accept power um, in all different ways, whether that's gender, 
um, to be good capitalist subjects yes. and to work. Um, Franz Fanon talks in the same way about watching films with white slave masters and black slaves and says either identify with the slave and my psyche is destroyed or I identify with the master and my psyche is destroyed in a different way. Mm. But the film tells me which one? It's Robin Hood, the slave master. So we are, but we also, by watching and learning, are giving ourselves tools to unbrainwash ourselves. That's the really strange thing. As soon as we're engaged mm. in the stories, we're engaged in thinking. And that's, that's one of the, the oddest things, is even with advertisements or media that are so clearly designed to brainwash us, ads just want us to do one thing buy something and be the person who buys it, somehow by watching them, we engage our curiosity, our, our passion, our knowledge about ourselves. Like you said, Christine, you're like, hmm, where am I? How do I find myself? So stories do both. And then when we see different kinds of stories or if we have passionate teachers, or we hear people speaking um, that can wake up that side of thinking, we start to see the stories differently. But the curiosity is ours. So we are brainwashed, but we're also smarter than that. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't have anything to add to that, I think. Um, but the, the, the tragedy is that I think um, we're very well aware of that uh, during childhood. Um, and we are divided before being brainwashed, um, we are disconnected from our intuition. Um, so that makes us very late um, to something we felt mm. very strongly. At least Robin Hood is an anti-capitalist uh, character. <laughs> um, and I, the, the most shocking thing it has, is it's that it still come off as a shock. And I'm still shocked it's been years now that, you know, I've connected to that, that feeling as a legitimate feeling. Um, and I'm still in shock because I, I also, because now that I'm hunting for alternatives, uh, whether they're in the contemporary uh, language of cinema or the future language of cinema um, or in the past, those alternatives, they're there, you know. Uh, that language, that alternative language, that counterculture, it, has, it, it, it always existed. So not only have you been brainwashed, you've also been cut off of the very, the, of all the, 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 uh, the brave uh, images, narratives that were there and that could help you live your life, you know, and connect more strongly to that. So, but it's also very full of hope because uh, now, we, because otherwise, you know, it could feel overwhelming that we have such a responsibility to actually, uh, yeah, have a new perspective on that language, which means building that language. No, it has also been spoken in very, very different ways. So it means that we can find relief uh, in past films that would and take this, take really take them as time traveling machines to actually heal ourselves in the past. Um, the, the, the Berlin Film Festival asked me to, they're doing this thing where they they want to do a thing about coming-of-age films, the history of coming-of-age film, and they're asking directors, you know, which film would you pick? And I was, I just had to pick a film a few days ago, and I was really hesitating between 
a film that I had seen as a teenager and that had made a strong impression on me, or a, a film that talks about teenagehood in a way that, that feels good. Um, and I decided that I would pick a film I wish I had seen as a teenager. Um, and I picked Marta Kulia, I'm saying this now, so it is, this stays between us, right? <laughs> Don't tweet that, please. <laughs> I'm, but, you know, um, but uh, yeah, I picked a film by Marta, Marta Kulic that is called Not a Pretty Picture. Um, it is a film about date rape. Uh, in a very, very specific, dispositive, very, very, that has been, you know, that is really, really looks very, very contemporary because it had been digested by other, by, by people. It's a very it's inception narrative that is really brilliant. Um, and it was a 1973 film, so I could definitely have seen it uh, as, a, as a teenager. It, it would have both told me about rape culture, and it would have also told me about how um, talking about that and thinking about that makes great art and great cinema. Um, so the hope is that we have is that there's a lot, a lot of already very, very good stuff to look at, um, and that now that cinema doesn't happen only there, uh, now that we are also our, our own curators and that we also have uh, you know, yeah, there's friendly algorithms, some robots are helping us um, because it's a war of robots right now. Um, yeah, we can, we, can, we can actually connect to that uh, in a very, very vital way. Uh, so that's, that, that, that makes our, our everyday life much more interesting, I think. I, that makes me really curious about what is the moment when what we could call a feminist gaze as a viewer got activated for you? When did you start both looking for something different? I think, <clears throat> I think from the beginning, I mean, at least, it, not maybe consciously, but there was a hunger and I was looking for something else. Mm. It doesn't mean that I found it or find it, but there was always this, you know, I, really every glimpse I took somehow, you know, if it's, um, I mean, from the children's, books um, or children's films and then later on, I mean, I think Germany and Austria had a very specific uh, film history after the war, which was very conservative. So, you know, everything what I, what I saw differently, like French films, you know, it was like a glimpse and I was like, oh, God, there is something which, I, which has something to do with me. So I think really it was from the beginning to look for something different. Yeah, and... and and I think we always found it. I think I always found it in a way because also it's uh, there was there were hidden messages, there were mm. hints in very mainstream film that were actually, you know, winking or that you could subvert. That's why queer culture is also always about subversion. It's always about sometimes saying this is mine. Um, and I remember the first time that I really felt active in front of a screen. It was a TV screen. Um, and there was a kiss, between, well, I think it was Casablanca, um, the best Marseillaise in this history. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and th that guy, uh, Bogart was kissing, uh, I don't even, yeah. And I was just, I put my hand on him. <laughs> I put my hand on him. 
because I, so, and that's why I kind of subverted the identification. I didn't want to identify to him, but I did it, really want to, I did, to, to, to kiss her, you know. Um, and so, because I think this idea of identification is part of the scam. I think uh, cinema isn't about identifying with a character. I think that's really part of uh, the way we are uh, making, yeah, the way we, we, we wrongly connect to film because cinema is not about those characters that don't exist. It's about ideas, it's about the language. Um, and this narrative about identification, that it's just what puts then in the world this idea that uh, then it's going to be about strong female characters, it's going to be about female characters. I don't, you know, it's, it's whereas you should, should, when you feel good in the film, it's not because the character is strong or looks like you, it's because um, the, the film is looking at you rather than you looking at yourself on the screen. Um, and the fact that I would erase him kind of put me in this path of not, no, I'm not, I, I don't want to identify. I want to be an active viewer and I want my desire to, to belong uh, in the frame. And that doesn't mean identification because otherwise we're just going to reproduce this idea that cinema is adrenaline about yourself. Whereas it should be adrenaline about cinema, <laughs> which is, um, you know, which is uh, hard to define, and we we have the responsibility to define it uh, very urgently now because they are defining it about the leathery seats and about this collective experience. Um, you know, as now people are not going to the cinema anymore, and I think they're right in a way. I mean, I understand them because it's so expensive. And how they, people are always being lectured about how you should buy the bourgeoisie, <laughs> saying like, oh, you should, you know, we have to teach people that it's a beautiful collective experience, that it's this new universal thing. Um, and I think people are not dumb. They know about that. You know, they know about th that feeling. It's just that maybe they don't find it. Maybe it's too expensive, and maybe this definition is too narrow. Um, my definition now about what, I'm, what is cinema is it's not about the room because otherwise it's dead. <laughs> it's uh, intimacy with an image. It's a type of intimacy with an image. And, you know, when we're like, oh, how is it different from a TV series or whatever? It's not about the quality of the cinematography. It's not about the quality of the narrative. It's not about the length. It's not about how you watch it in a way. It's about how you feel in front of an image. And I think we are very good at saying, like, this is cinema and this is not cinema, even watching it on our computer. And doesn't mean that what is not cinema is not as good as cinema, you know? Um, and that's the opportunity we have today also. That's also what the, the, this kind of beautiful dynamic that we have, you know, to be hopeful is that um, no one, if you shoot something with your phone and you stream it uh, on the web, no, today, no one can tell you this is not cinema. No one. Five years ago, you could be told that. You know. um, and I think that's a very, very important moment for that language, that it uh, kind of escaped from where it's supposed to be shown, because there's programmer, there's institution, there's... But look at how it's done, and mostly how we feel in front of that image, so that we feel this is cinema. And... Um, it connects us to that very ancient feeling that we had, because we're also, and you're young, and I, I, I'm short-sighted, so I, I hope you are. <laughs> uh, but you know, I learned about cinema on TV. I learned about cinema with, with VCR, I learned about, and I 
still connected. To, you know, we know that feeling. That's a very long answer to a question you didn't ask me. <laughs> well, another manifesto. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think um, part of feminist film thinking has always been work with what you have. Because in general, women filmmakers, filmmakers of marginalized gen genders, black filmmakers, don't have access to the big toys. But what did Orson Welles say, the train set? They say, no, we have some paper cutouts, like Lotte Reiniger. We have a trick table in our house, like Mary Menken making film diaries. We'll shoot with our phones, like the young people in Iran today. It's all cinema, and as you say, cinema becomes this prestige term for a bourgeois art form that your soul doesn't experience, where you're supposed to be passive and absorb. So we're gonna go out for an audience question in a moment, have a think. Um, but I just wanted to say about Casablanca, as a film historian, what becomes really interesting is when you look at films like Casablanca and you say, oh, Conrad Veidt was a bisexual Jew who fled the Nazis. He also thought he could talk to dead people through the radio, but that's, that's part of queer feminism too, right? We believe in other worlds. He, you know, um, the, the culture that he lost, that he was right. Um, Casablanca is a film made by emigres. It's a film made by queer people who left Europe, made by Jews who left Europe. That film doesn't have hidden meanings, like look at Ingrid Bergman and Kissa, save her from Hitchcock for no reason, right? So film history, like you said to me, is so important. We can talk about future film languages, but I asked about where you started to see it, because I think if we forget our history, we do have to invent it all over again. And to be in a room like this is wonderful, but to think that everyone here could have access to, oh yes, I saw a Jacqueline Audrey film. Oh yes, I, you know, I've been able to see a Sarah Maldoro film. You know, that's what we want as well, I think. I don't know, Christine, how, are there particular sort of films that you, you've seen that you wish everyone, when you find out people haven't seen them, you're like, oh, how come you haven't seen this like classic of feminist cinema? Yeah. <laughs> like what? <laughs> no, no, but I mean, I was just thinking what you said, you know, there are certain films you think, shit, why didn't I see it when I was 20 or when I was 15? Or, I mean, for me, it was mainly films by, by, by female filmmakers. Mm -hmm. I mean, like Helge Sander, Red Jupers, I saw five years ago. And it was never, I never saw it when I was 20. Yeah. And so this is more this, uh, this uh, thing that I, 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 I'm sometimes I think, shit, why didn't I get, why didn't I get this to see, you know, when I was 15? You know, you would have saved time, maybe. You know, I mean, it's, it's time, not, maybe you don't lose time because you, you do it differently, but, but it is also a time loss because you're going into in the ways, you know, you're questioning your identity. It's about shame. It's about not have the courage or whatever, you know, you need years after years which you lose. So Culturally, we lose time. Yes. As well, because yes. everyone has to refine it. Um, I'm just thinking about, you know, Ulla Steckel's work. Yeah, as well. Ulla Steckel, I met her two years ago and I saw her films, I must say, two years ago. How many? And I was also thinking, why? I mean, of course, I could, have seen, I could have seen it earlier, I must really say, because it yeah. was in my mind mm. a few years before and I somehow forgot. But why didn't I see this in the canon of 
the German cinema of the 70s. You know why? I had to wait 25 years to see it, or 30 years. I mean, this is really mean. It's, it's mean. It's mean. It's mean. Yeah, yeah. dominant culture is, is mean. It takes our yeah. history away from us. Yeah. To, like taking toys away from children to punish us yeah. for imagining freedom. Yeah. Just small comment there. And, <laughs> like, Celine, you know, with Casablanca, you're making a queer film. But uh, what are some of the queer films that you wish more people had seen or you wish that you'd seen when you were young? I mean, I haven't seen them. I think it's, I'm still ignorant of a lot of them. But Goldfish was really important for me, and I was a contemporary of its release. Uh, it's the f yeah, it's actually the first film that I went to see at the cinema, and I felt like okay, okay, 1994, I think. Um, Lizzie Borden. Um, uh, Recently, something that struck me very much was is uh, Cecilia Mangini's work. She was, uh, I'm not going to say, she, she, she's told as Pasolini's female collaborator, but basically you read stuff for her. But and you can see all the films on YouTube. Yeah. Amazing um, documentaries. Um, I'm very bad at making lists, so it's it, yeah. <laughs> but... Um, I mean, the first time I saw two women kissing, it was on the screen. So my first experience of a lesbian kiss was at the cinema. And, and it was, I still, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's also my first kiss, you know, in a way. Um, so that puts you in a position where you understand how vital it is, I think. Um, and that's sad, but that's also quite beautiful and dynamic if uh, because suddenly yeah you realize the the power uh, and so when you realize the power that it has you understand why it's been shut down and also the power that the actual films with a lot of money they have um, and I think it puts you in a better position to be active as a viewer, which is, I mean, of course, we, I make films so I consider, you know, active as a director, but most of my everyday life is being, is watching stuff that other people made, you know. Um, and that's where I get my everyday pleasure and joy. Um, and to be made very active into this and also an investigator, um, I think has also shaped uh, my life in a way that I love uh, to be a little bit more positive about <laughs> what we didn't go through. But that tension of looking uh, and looking for something um, is now at the heart of, of, of what I do. Uh, because I, yeah, I, I, I always feel, I always felt like I'm the main character of the film I'm watching because I'm looking for something. And now when I write film, I always think of you as the main characters of the film and not the characters. So I write the film thinking about the audience as the main character. And I think that comes from that past, our past, huh? not just mine. And I think we should talk more about developing a film language for intimacy and for welcoming the audience and what that also looks like in practice and on set. But I also want to see if we have any audience questions 
yet, and then we can get into film grammar. Actually, I would like to take the opportunity that all, I already have the mic in my hand. Uh, Celine, you said before that uh, you're hunting for alternatives. Uh, what exactly does this mean? And the second question, when you're refusing to collaborate uh, with systems you're criticizing, what does this mean for you as a filmmaker and also, Christine, for you as a cinematographer? Um, I forgot your first question. <laughs> the hunting. It's about the hunting for alternatives. Yeah, so how do you hunt? Yes. <laughs> and what you're looking for, what the alternatives? Um, well, mostly right now I'm looking at uh, yeah, feminists from the past, uh, whereas it is in cinema or literature, and mostly also how they're connected to each other. I started this, this you know, we're queer people, the world of ch charts, is really important. Um, and that's not just gossip. Uh, that's, uh, that's community and that's, uh, that means how uh, love ideas, love for ideas circulate through love. Um, you know, I started to do my own chart, not about the contemporary... Well, I'm starting to get there. Um, but uh, around modernism, you know, um, and, and Paris was at the center also of, uh, of a lesbian world uh, in, uh, in the beginning of uh, the 20th century. And, uh, and once you start m mapping that, you know, there was the suing circle in Hollywood, which was like uh, the lesbians uh, gathering and, and how Tallulah Bankhead was with, you know, this, we know that very well, Garbo and Djedjic and stuff. But uh, those women, they are linked to also scientific in Russia, Marina Tsetsavia, um, Una Tubridge, Virginia Woolf. Um, and I started doing this uh, research out of this idea because I was doing uh, a little bit of genealogy. You know, lockdowns, you gotta find something to do. <laughs> and, uh, and I realized that uh, maybe, you know, I wouldn't be on any genealogical tree because I didn't have children. Um, because I was looking for someone from my family that I, I can't find anywhere, and it's because they didn't have kids. And I was like, okay, so that's straight genealogy, that's patriarchal uh, genealogy, mostly not straight, because a lot of queer people have kids, you know, so they belong. Um, and I was like, what would be our genealogy? It, would be, it wouldn't be through blood, it would be through skin. And so suddenly I did this map uh, around, yeah, love. And, and, and you can see all the artists really grooving together and how the ideas circulate. And this whole map is a strong, uh, is, is really is the avant-garde of the 20th century. Um, and so I'm navigating this and trying to <laughs> meet uh, all these characters uh, one by one and see how they interact, also to understand how we could, you know, for instance, uh, there's a lot of women with a lot of money in there, and they contributed a lot to that. You have an heiress here, I've heard about her. She wants to get, she here? No. <laughs> this woman who's got all that money, wants to give it away, but doesn't want to make a foundation? Yeah. I hope she'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, so that's how, that's how I look for things. I'm looking for connections. 
Um, also to get out of this idea of the genius idea to see how things circulate, because that's really what we're trying to do right now and how things circulate through Europe. Because I think that's what we gotta do. We gotta, we gotta have this alliance. That's why we're here, you know. And how do I do not to... Well, I've navigated the system. Um, I'm quite even, you know, an advertisement for the system, I must say. I did the, the National Film School in France, which is very public in French. Um, and uh, and then, you know, I did my first film, I went to the festivals, blah, 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 blah. I even got to experiment international success. Can, whatever, and I'm like, okay, now I'm not interested in this anymore. <laughs> um, and and I don't think I will continue in that path. So I'm looking, I'm very secretive, so I won't tell you about my alternatives, <laughs> but be sure that uh, I'm not looking for that alternative within the system because it's my responsibility. I mean, if one of you gets a film that gets in the Cannes Film Festival, I'm like, go and try to enjoy it. I'm not saying, uh, but where I am right now, I think it's my responsibility to find other ways because uh, I've had it in my hands and maybe, you know, with a little bit of power to actually look for that uh, in a very, in, in a comfortable, uh, with a comfortable situation, not in a survival mode. So, um, and I, you know, I'm not alone also in this. It's uh, also, we are, uh, what well, Xavier Dolan today said he didn't want to make film anymore. He said he wanted to do commercial and buy a country house. So <laughs> it's not the same, right? But, uh, you know, Adele Nell, who plays in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, she, she, she says she's on strike from cinema. So she left, basically, but she says she's on strike. Um, and yeah, we are on strike. <laughs> solidarity with the people on strike everywhere, you know, and we're French, so we love strikes. <laughs> and we miss them, they're not happening. <laughs> we're tired. <laughs> and Christine, I'm thinking about Quo Vadis Aida, mm -hmm. which is also a film in solidarity. Not with what? A film in solidarity, mm -hmm. not with people who are on strike, but with people who are looking for a different kind of politics, looking for, to remake the world in some way. And I'm, you mean it, not the, the filmmakers? The, the filmmakers, and I, yeah, so the, the filmmakers yeah. are making a film in solidarity with the story. And I'm just wondering, you know, you've worked on lots of different kinds of films, but Itty Bitty Titty Committee, I love saying that title, <laughs> Jamie Babbitt's film, is also about destroying the system. Yeah, but it's very, it's very, very different. It's very different. So is that something that's attracted you no, to... No, of course it attracts me. And I mean, with Yasmila, it's a, a very long friendship I have with her since 25 years, longer, 25 years. And for Yasmila, it's, it's a need. You know, she, she's one of these persons, I mean, for me, one of the most courage persons I know, uh, one of the most uncorrupted persons. And for her, it was such a need to do this film. I mean, she never wanted to do this film, but she said she had to. And of course, it was also this, how, how are you dealing with a historical, with, with this historical ereignis? Event, you know. And, and for us, there was a big discussion how to represent, you know, how to, how to tell, or how to not tell, tell is also, I don't know another word, something, how to... How to connect the story yeah, and the audience. Yeah. And we were, 
of course, a lot talking about how to present war and this war society. And there was, of course, this decision that we want to treat it differently. It's not a spectacle. It's not, you know, we wanted to give out this spectaculum out of it, which Yasmila says it's, it's not. You know, she, she, was, she was in Sarajevo five years, so she knows how, how and she never, you know, she wanted to, to tell about her perspective on, on this. And also with the women character, of, I mean, there were so much discussions. Or the male characters, you know, she's also created a new kind of male character, which is completely existing, but it's never shown. And he's, I mean, he's a very gentle person, I mean, in the film, the, the, the father. So I, I lost a little bit there. It's a big story, but it was a lot of discussion. It was a lot of research. It was a lot of uh, very conscious decisions how to film it and what not to film it. Mm -hmm. Especially it was what we don't want. So we never show actual, actual violence and... So this was one of our first decisions, because we wanted to show what is before and after. And of course, this sort of the epilogue, you know, something what happens in one minute is, has consequences the next 30 years. And this was also her, her how can say, one of her uh, points. Or, but it, yeah, Yasmila would be better to, to talk about this. But we discussed a lot about, you know, about how to film I mean, how to film war, or, you know, film war is also already an awful language. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, how to film it that you feel it, and you know that you, that, that you feel the power of it, but with, with avoiding of it. Mm -hmm. Avoiding to, to show this imaginary, you know, this technique, this a lot of soldiers and whatever. So it was yeah, a very conscious process, I must say. So it was conscious, it was collaborative. Yeah. And I'm, I want to ask about also taking care. Um, you're talking in some ways about taking care of the audience, of the story, but also of actors and people on set. Because I think Adele is not just on strike because of prize culture, but also mm. because of production culture. And over the last five years, it's become very public what production culture is like. It's not just that it's happened in the last five years. We all, as you say, know stories about what production culture was like in Hollywood. Um, in the classical studio era, actresses being starved, drugged, murdered, um, sometimes all three, if they try to speak out. Um, so when you're working on set, how are you finding alternatives there within you know, filmmaking is very industrial. <laughs> you say you don't describe yourself as a technical worker, but there's still cameras and lights. Mm. So what, what do you both do, or what, Christine, you might have seen directors doing to make a set somewhere that people can do their best work, kind of as a feminist practice of care? And how do you, also, how do you think that influences what we see on screen? Like, is there a relation between a production where people are respected, where collaboration is happening, and where it's not happening. I would say, so yes. I mean, I had also bad experiences, I must say. I mean, at least two films, I would say it was, it would have been better not to do it. Mm -hmm. 
or three. Two, uh, two, I would say. And sometimes it's very, you know, then you're in a very difficult situation. Um, I mean, it happened three times in my life that I said, I, I'm not doing it. Or, you know, that I, so I'm, once I lost my job because I said this, it was at the very beginning, it was a documentary, and um, the second two times was about how to film female characters. And I said, I, I'm not doing it. Which was also difficult. And it was not, I'm not proud, you know, I don't want that, um, you know, I'm not proud of it, but I, I had to do it. So in one case, they engaged somebody else for this scene. Yes. Just for one? For one scene, yes. And uh, the other time, the director took the camera and made this shot. <laughs> Which was... <laughs> Yeah, but otherwise I am looking for collaboration. Which you know, I, I want to work with people whom I really respect and like. Mm -hmm. And mostly, I mean, maybe that's why I collaborate mostly with women. And not not always. I mean, no, 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 no. It's not that. I, I mean, I, they are fantastic. female. you know. And anyway, I want to say, patriarchal behavior is not always a question of gender. So there are so many women, and one of the one of the experiences I had really problems was was a woman. It was not a man. The other one was a man. But <clears throat> so it's really independent of of gender. Um, what I wanted to say? No, no. But uh, you know, I I often had the feeling that there are certain directors who have another approach to hierarchy and have another approach of a film set. So, like, you know, that flatter hierarchy, not this kind of feudalistic uh, or the feudal system. Yeah. So I, I would say I prefer this definitely. Because the other, the other way is for me sometimes already falling out of time. Um, and I think it's also then part of, I mean, of course there's a hierarchy in the, in the, in the filmmaking process, but... Uh, but as long as it's, it's about the content, and about the film, that everybody's fighting for the film, mm -hmm. I don't care, you know, you really have to fight for, for ideas. But if it's about power, then it's really difficult. So it happened, you know, I had experience in that. In that we direction. would uh, like to make some space for questions. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. Do, yeah, I have a question about the notion of alternatives um, because you're like all role models to me. I'm a young filmmaker, but I'm also wondering how how to also maybe not step into the system before kind of questioning it. How is it possible as a young filmmaker to make films within the alternative? Yeah. Thanks. Well, you know, there's several battlefields. So um, there's not just one way to subvert things. Um, it really, I'm just saying that it really depends on the opportunities you have also. And if you have the opportunity to actually uh, engage in the traditional system and you feel 
strong strongly about you feel that's that you know that's that's how the film should be made and you know you you, you should there's a way to be an alternative within the system i've i've kind of done that you know uh so but you should feel good that's what i'm trying to say so it should feel good um you should uh you shouldn't put yourself in a position of uh, where it's violent to work. Uh, and you know, I, I even had violent experience on my set. Of, you know, I tend to try to make sets the way I want them to be, so with these ideas of, uh, uh, yeah, kind sets, you know. And sometimes it's just like this person coming that you don't know, that has been booked at the last minute and that can really ruin the mood. So you're never... You're always in danger, even if you think, oh, I'm the boss, I'm in charge, and I'm, I picked everyone. Uh, it's, um, it's, a, it's a very intense uh, moment, the shooting, and sometimes there are strangers involved, um, most of the time. Um, so I'm not answering to your question, sorry. Um, yeah. I... I do you want to? Do, I mean, are, are you saying? Are you asking yourself, should I, should I even try, or is it just that you have the desire to try and that you're wondering if you'll get hurt in the process? I don't even know if I'm looking at you right now. <laughs> oh, I wasn't. <laughs> are you, as a No, I definitely want to make films, and um, I will make some, but I, I'm just like, um, I feel like, I don't know if there's like, if there can be like a, a notion of feminism washing. I feel like that within the system, or I had this experience, I made a film that was about a feminist collective, and some of the festivals, so it was turning in, in a lot of feminist um, um, also categories in, in festivals, and some of them were a safe space to show the movie and to have great discussions about it, but others were also just, you could feel that the festival itself was made by men that were trying to be feminist, but at the same time, everything around it didn't feel safe at all. And, and I think it's hard as a young filmmaker to kind of see the difference also is it an opportunity that is also supportive in a way that I'm, I want it, or is it kind of the opposite? <laughs> we have and the same questions, yeah. Okay. I'm wondering but exactly <laughs> what you do. <laughs> but, yeah. I, I, I think it's great that you, there were feminist festivals that you could experience, because for so long, the only experience was you had to go into the mainstream and swallow the hostility or the sense that you were being exploited um, and then try and navigate around that to get the film to audiences that needed it. So the fact that at the moment there are alternative spaces to show films as well as alternative ways to make them um, is really important and it's another one of those things that tends to happen and, and get lost. So in the 1970s there was an international wave of 
feminist film festivals exactly for this reason that did the same kind of mapping that Celine did. Apparently they had one list that went from festival to festival that said where you could find um, the print of Mädchen in uniform, where you could find Olivia by Jacqueline Audry. And then someone would write, oh no, there's a, there's a second reel. There's this new filmmaker called Chantal Ackerman. We should check her out. And of course she would never screen her films in feminist or queer film festivals. She said, I'm just a filmmaker. Um, so other people have different feelings. But for those alternatives then lost funding, they were folded in into main film festivals and said, oh no, now we show 15% of women, it's enough, we don't need a feminist film festival anymore. And now it's happening again. And supporting those spaces, showing your films in those spaces, connecting to those audiences, so that that festival stays alive, because those audiences may make the next films or may get involved with the festival. That's how we keep it going. And right now I'm so scared about what's happening with populism and economic austerity, because the first things that get cut are always the alternatives. The alternative spaces, the money for preserving films that have been lost. Um, and there's such a flourishing at the moment, and I'm so scared that pff, it's gonna be the first thing that goes. So. Today, what's happening, what Dirigis Serenen are doing in FC Gloria is so important to keep alive these kind of collective ways of working, to learn them, to hand them on, to screen the films, um, and keep building, because as long as there are those alternatives, you can also show your films in the mainstream festivals in the hope five people in the audience who wouldn't know about the alternative festival see it there and are inspired. But it's always, like Celine says, you don't know where the violence is going to be because you're in public space. You're working with people um, in, in, at any time. So I think we want to have all of it, right? And to be able to say, yes, I want to make one experimental film that's super low budget and I need to pay my rent. Right? <laughs> Let's not pretend that's not real. Right? So. And, and there are, you know, there are examples, like I think of Ulla Steckel because that was a moment when, who's a, was a, is a fantastic, still working, still alive West German filmmaker. Also like, uh, you know, was known as like Fassbinder's protege. But there was a moment where experimental work was you could live okay from the money. You know, not fancy, but you could live. And maybe that's the best solution that we want. Artists being able to live and work how they want. I don't, I don't know what you think. But she's now at university. She's now this, yeah, I mean, she stopped being able to make films when West Germany ceased to exist. Yeah. And so she's been living and teaching in Florida. Um, but there's two amazing uh, younger dykes making a great documentary about her and her life. So soon we'll, mm. they like follow her around to festivals. Um, hopefully we'll see that story. But yeah, it's always a very brief moment. And then politics change and economics change and the most exciting things get destroyed. Yeah. I mean, she, I think after nine Leben had any cuts, she, she didn't get any film after well you know they, they didn't they didn't finance her films yeah she made she made tv 
But that yeah, but only one or two. I mean, yeah. really. I mean, then the film is so fantastic. That's uh, so the angriness is coming up. You know, the, the story with this first film that Ulla Steckel made is it was bought by a distributor who was a porn distributor because it has images, um, uh, you know, what we might call an early feminist gaze—a woman looking at women trying to frame a different language—and then he didn't distribute the film. And then she couldn't make any more films. Mm. It just sat in a can for for 40 years. So mm. the answer is keep showing your film everywhere and keep making the films you want to make. But like Celine says, we, we all have to use whatever we have to fight for an industry where people don't have to make choices just out of economic desperation or don't have to compromise. But the joy will always be in the alternative space. Mm. I mean, don't look for joy in the mainstream because it's a fight. You know, like I went to the Cannes Film Festival with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. The screening was like, I don't know, so tensed. And uh, the day after, I mean, Le Cahier du Cinéma gave me zero. So it's, uh, you know, it's, so you can be like, oh, she's going to the Cannes Film Festival. She's getting, you know, they're getting so much uh, blah, blah, blah. You make portrait and cahier on <laughs> They don't need me to 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 die. Um, so, but it, it means it's uh, you know it's uh, it's political. It's places those places you have to 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 go to every every when you go. Yeah, you have to to you've gonna feel the politics of the place, and so once more it puts your body and your feelings into that. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, uh, yeah, into that uh, you're connected to this energy. So you have to be, it has a cost. It's, uh, so that's why when you go there, you go there. Now I don't go there anymore. I boycotted it this year for the first time. I won't go to the Cannes Film Festival anymore, for instance. Um, I think it's important that I don't go anymore, for instance. Um, and it's, it's, but it's a path. I think it was important that I went, and I think it's now important that I don't. Um, but you, it's also a form of isolation. Uh, so it's. Uh, uh, but as we always, we we are all talking. We are talking about the fact that it's really a very conscious uh, process. Um, and you know, sometimes we've been taught also that cinema. You know, we have this very romantic approach to cinema, which I think for me is the shelter for abuse, especially on the set. You know, like it's. Uh, and each time, well, if you're Kubrick and you're making this very conscious process, everyone applauds you, you're such a meticulous director. But for instance, when I manifest the fact that I'm in a very conscious process, you can be loaded for that because it means you're programmatic, it means you... Whereas, you know, I'm like, well, this costs a lot of money, I better know what I'm doing, you know? And I'm, yeah, I'm looking for accuracy. And that's how collaborative I am. Doesn't mean that I'm doing... That, that my actors are puppets, you know. It's like, yeah, we're ready for this because we want to be accurate and that's how collaborative we are. But it's always, uh, it's, um, they always tell it the other way. Um, and I got lost, I think. In my yeah, but maybe we'll open again for some questions. We really want to motivate you, Elizabeth, <laughs> to pose your questions. Well, what a wonderful crowd. Thank you for organizing. I was just at the Venice Biennial with my 18-year-old daughter, 
and there are 72% of the artists this year are women. And I um, myself edited a feminist reader in 97, and I never in my worst nightmares thought it would take so long. But uh, on the rest of the artists were BPOCs. So to, to, to be there with my daughter for three days was like bathing in some futuristic <laughs> environment. And the art was, and the videos and the films we saw were so different. It, 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 I, I think it was the three happiest days of my life. And uh, I'm a filmmaker myself and I, I had to become a producer, a job I hate. I hate numbers, I hate money. But I think this is the only way to go forward. And my teams are usually 80-90% women. I think if some of us can do this nasty job, I think <laughs> we should really take the money in our hands. We have to. There's no other way. Yes, thank you. Celine, I just want to add, isn't it? Uh, it's me in the back <laughs> um, here. Uh, didn't you also want to produce yourself because of the same reason? Well, no, because, I mean, uh, I'm lucky enough to, to have uh, a, pro a producer, to, to, to collaborate with a producer on my, all my films. Um, and so I will definitely, she's my main collaborator. Uh, and I will keep working with her as long as uh, she wants. <laughs> um, but uh, I want to be invested more in the process, yes. Uh, but it's more regarding the tools than uh, the actual uh, production. I always, I think we always kind of produce our, our films uh, because production is also right. You can write production. I write production. So for instance, I consider that I, um, when I say write production, for instance, it's like I take Tomboy. Tomboy, I was like, I want to make a film as fast as possible to see if this is possible, that I could write a film and make it. And so I went to my producer and I said, I'm going to write something in two weeks. Maybe we should shoot it in two months. And, and I'm just going to write 50 scenes and it's going to be 20 days of shooting. That's writing production. And that's exactly what we did. And then, uh, and that doesn't mean that her part of the job is just getting the money, you know, because then, of course, we interact on the script. We have, we share the brain of the film. Uh, and part of the brain of the film is also the production. So. Um, I'm, I have this comfortable thing where I can uh, write and think about production without having to engage in the actual solutions. But, uh, but I mean, um, we design it uh, together and this I still want to do. But yes, I would like to have my own tools, which is different, which means invent, invest in my own workshop. Um, and that is something that I could, yeah, would do myself. I would, um, so we would co-produce and but it's yeah that I have uh, yeah that I that I have everything I need to make a film around me all the time, uh, which is also part of our history as a as feminist filmmaker. And also a, a Marxist history of taking control of the means of production and then democratizing them and teaching them to other people. Because if you're always having to go, please can can I borrow this camera? Can I get this money? Yeah, and so yeah, there's a long history of um, 
feminist workshops, um, labs. Like right now, I was in uh, I was in Portugal uh, a month ago, and I visited uh, a lab because you know once when we're talking also about the definition of cinema and saving cinema, the cameras, the tools, uh, they are also part of the archives and they are living archives because you know you can. If you have a, uh, a 16 millimeter camera, then you can do 16 millimeter. You know, you, uh, um, and those labs, uh, they are collecting uh, all this, uh, all this gear. Uh, and sometimes it's going to be like uh, a screening, a screen, portable screen from uh, that was used in the Second World War. It's going to be something from uh, uh, even the police that had like something to actually, um, how do you say? Um, um, ah, fuck. No. Uh, no, I mean, uh, when you, you know, there's the celluloid and then you have to develop, develop. Something to develop uh, by yourself and the chemicals and they are also, and not, they're also getting back this, this, these tools and, and putting them, you know, in full access and also saving a savoir-faire, a craft that now, you, you know, they would develop their own thing and so it's mostly for experimental cinema. But uh, those tools, they are, they are there. And I would, like for instance, this live dynamic that is also very, very European because all those labs, they communicate and there's a lot of women involved in them. Um, there are, they are, of course, the avant-garde, the experimental cinema, but they are doing this job also of uh, our tools. Um, and that's also a, a perspective you, beautiful to explore, uh, I think, and that, that, makes, that gives a lot of hope regarding also, yeah, uh, not if the future isn't the new tools. Our old tools can be our new tools, um, and there's continuity in that. Um, and it's not only just restoring the old film; it's also very good, very bad at mime. Christine, when you started out, did you find that there was a lot of sexist language around working with technology, working with cameras? being told, oh, you can't carry that. Yes, or... yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That, that's part of the reason for having the feminists establish these workshops was to say there's, there's a gendered lack of access. It's not that we can't, it's that we're not taught, we're not allowed, we're not encouraged to grow up and tinker with machines and so on. So how did you, how did you deal with that? Mm. No, no, I mean, I mean it was... Um... How can I say? It was really not very encouraging. And when I want, when I when I decided, which was a, such a long process, really, for me, you know, I was really thinking for one and a half years about shall I try to do it or not. And I was uh, thinking back the other day. There was no grown up around me who said do it. No, no, no one. So I was. Um, I made a practicum at the ORF. Everybody said, don't become a cinematographer, become an editor. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, my, my parents also said, of course, what? I mean, we will not earn money at all. But there was really no, no grown up. So it was just my friends, you know, who supported me. And then, of course, uh, it was full with, with, um, with um, how do you call it? Uh, prejudices, completely, I mean, massive. And somehow you also got used to it, I mean, which is a sad thing to, to say. So 
you know, it was not, not normal at that time. It was just normal. So it was a hard, you know, you're losing time with, with, with this. This is the main thing. Uh, another director with Sabine Daphne also said, you know, you're, as a woman, you're losing time, which is uh, because of that, because you maybe are not so courage to say, yes, I take this job and this job, because you're always, like, ashamed. Maybe I can't do it, maybe this is bullshit. I mean, it was really hard. But now it changed really completely. So now when you're on a set, it's a complete different tone than the day, you know, when I was camera assistant. It's completely changed. So it's, I must, I'm not, I must, I, I want to say. So it's change, anymore, change is possible. It's not anymore this, this language, it's not anymore this kind of behavior. It's really different. So um, if there are questions, you can also just put up your hand and when there is a good time, we'll just uh, um, let you say your question. Uh, we try to like encourage you again to share. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, just before I hand over the microphone, uh, she's over here. I just wanted to say, um, let's maybe just also come back a little bit to uh, the title of our panel here because... I really would love to hear your thoughts about uh, what we're talking about when we talk about uh, feminist grammar in film, uh, and also a little bit about your thoughts uh, to the gaze theory. Uh, I mean, we were so much talking about the female gaze, and then we changed it because we had so much discussion in our group about can we still talk about female gaze? What you know? So, uh, but I hand it over. I if you. Don't, uh, yeah, if you forget about it, I come back and <laughs> tell it again. Thank you. Thank you for this panel, everybody and speakers. Um, I would like to ask you maybe kind of con uh, continue on what you said about uh, being the only woman in the camera department and also how, I guess my observation also there is that The sad thing is that these things just doesn't come to women by chance because you really have to come with this like persuasion, like I want to do this thing, like it just doesn't happen because you tried it out accidentally and then you just became a drummer in a band or a camera, like photography head of the camera department, for example. Um, and I guess, yeah, I think as a filmmaker, I think about this a lot. I always said and try to have... Uh, female crews or maybe think about some kind of a mixture that would match the same or like match the best way but as again as you say it doesn't always have to have with gender it also has to do with understanding of these issues so it's super complicated uh, but still we're, we just cannot be gender blind anyway so I guess my question is what is your like recipe like how do you mix your crew if you have a chance to really pick people or if you have maybe like a smaller independent project what would be your ideal mixture and i'm not just talking about gender maybe like what other ideas are important or like values of these people are important to you or if it's really something more quota based that works for you thank you to you or to me <laughs> all of us I mean, in my um, department as cinematographer, I try always to have also women with me. I mean, it's sometimes hard in the lightning department, 
also I had now all the ones uh, uh, female gaffer, but you know a lot of like in grip and and, and gaffer department it is hard to find somebody, but I think that this will also change. I mean now I have uh, a, a friend of mine, um, a younger colleague, she's now uh, becoming a static cam operator. You know, I think it will change because there are the same prejudices like I had, you know, it's too hard, it's too too heavy, you can't do it. But, you know, I mean, to be a gaffer, it's, it's a lot of different um, abilities you need to have. It's not about carrying heavy stuff. It's about complete different things. So I think that this will also change. And uh, so as I said, I try to have it um, not, I don't have it always, but in the camera department I try to have a, uh, how could I, uh, a balance, yes. But I didn't manage it always. I should try even harder. Yeah, that's how it is. Um, well, now I'm, I'm lucky enough that, you know, people who want to work with me, either they're, if they're masculinist, they're masochist, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I turn now to attract people who, you know, share the same politics, so I'm in a more comfortable position. Uh, now that, uh, you know, it's like uh, sometimes I enter a room, it's really easy that, you know, it's like oil and I mean, it's like you attract and you repulse uh, um, people. So, but um, I must say, I have kind of the main same collaborators, except for my director of photography who significantly significantly changed for Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Petite Maman. Uh, but otherwise, assistant director has been the same person, my editor has been the same person, my producer, my the, the composer of, uh, of the music. Uh, the, um, so it's the casting director. So I also, we grew up together um, and our politics also changed, and I think uh, now I'm lucky enough to have, you know, I think the assistant director I've worked with, she, she knows me more than clearly my own family, you know. <laughs> she knows my brain, my ideas, you know. <laughs> um, so this idea of, uh, of a process, you know, uh, which means also uh, that it's going to be a, a long conversation where you can change, when you can... Uh, because, for instance, the assistant director I work with, she's a... She's a fifth, when I, I was 26 when I did What Lilies, she was my age now. So she was also uh, kind of old-fashioned, you know, she... she um, but we grew, we grew up together. And, and also the fact that it can be intergenerational, I think, is really, really important. Um, so it has a lot to do with friendship, I think, also. Um, so relationship over quotas or over statistics. And yeah, and, and the fact that maybe you won't share the exact same politics. 
as a director, puts you in the responsibility of being a mediator, of, of translating your ideas in a language that... Because that's the job of being a director, in a way. It's translating your ideas in a different language. That's a script. You know, you write the sound, you write... That's why a script is not literature, that's why it's so boring, and then you throw it away. It's like you're communicating with different talents so that they will enhance and the ideas. So you also have to build a language within the set, in a way, based on the language that you wrote in your room, you know? Uh, so it's kind of, that's, that's the difficulty of cinema, is that it's quite a confrontational uh, language, that you will have, think about the language, then you will have, you, you implement that language virtually with people, and then you actually have to make it. Um, so for me, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's, it's <laughs> that's how that's how I, that's that's how I think about it. So I never, for instance, yeah, I never had that feeling like oh, that collaborator now wouldn't understand my shift, or I I, I see it yes as a process uh, of learning also to speak to speak up about your ideas in the most uh, efficient and. In a very yeah, that they would get transformed because it's about transforming the ideas together. You know, it's not about making them happen. It's about yeah, yeah. Um, I have a question. Oh. There's a little bit of a shift, but it's related to the thought that like creating inclusive set is not only about which people you hire and which people you decide to work with, but actually like you know how to create the conditions so they are actually able to work in good conditions. And I wanted to ask so, because I know you've been doing a lot of research um, about the question of like how to really make working for parents more easy and more possible. Like, can you maybe give us some insights from your research about this topic? Um, sure. Um, so I'm one of the co-founders of an organization, as Marie said, called Raising Films, um, which was founded by for um, women who are all filmmakers and who are all parents of young children and me. I'm not a woman, I'm not a filmmaker, and I'm not a parent. Um, but I'm a, I'm a feminist film historian and critic, and a friend of mine, a filmmaker called Hope Dixon Leach, phoned me and said, I've just been accepted on a, a low-budget filmmaking scheme. I think some people in the room will be familiar with this, a micro-budget first film. And I have two children, one with a disability. I cannot sleep on someone's couch and make a film in three weeks. My son needs intensive care. I can't just bring in a childminder, even if I could afford one. What do I do? Is there a single woman working as a director in British film who is a mother? So this was in 2014, and I looked at the chapter I was writing on British feminist cinema, and I was so ashamed that I had never asked this question. I had never thought about it. Also, what was really interesting is to find out that some of the directors I was writing about were parents, and they never spoke about it. Beban Kidron directed a film Pregnant, didn't tell the producers because she would have been fired because you're told it's an insurance risk. So she just wore bigger and bigger coats. <laughs> Luckily, it was winter. She then gave birth the day before the producer screening, left her baby in hospital, went to the screening, and came back to do her first breastfeed. 
don't work in the mainstream. There is no joy there. And she was only able to do that because Steven Spielberg said he would cover any day that she missed on set and he would protect her secret. So um, whatever we think of Steven Spielberg, there's one good story. <laughs> Um, and found out that there were other filmmakers who'd been teenage single mothers and had grown-up children when they started making documentaries. So they were able to go back to school because, you know, they'd had kids when they were really young. Um, and so it became about, first of all, finding these stories of how did people do it, and then understanding it in a bigger sense. And I think this also brings us on to the question of the female gaze and the feminist gaze and whether they're useful terms, because to me, the gaze is something that comes out of labor practices. Uh, the gaze is a way of naming structures. The male gaze was never intended as a phrase. It was just like, oh, look at this one perfect shot on Twitter. The male gaze names a structure of practices of who has power. So in some ways we can't talk about the female gaze because it implies there could be an equal power as well as that there's some kind of biological, you know, you're sort of born with it, which I think is a big problem. Um, so we really found that asking where are the working parents in British cinema and television became a whole big question about why is there no access for disabled workers on set? There's just been a study done that's shown that fewer than one in 60 productions have dis disability access toilets in the UK. How can people work in those conditions? But because film is a reputational industry, if you ask, you get blacklisted. If you complain, you don't work again. If your union doesn't stand up for you, you don't work again. And traditionally, the unions have been as macho um, as, as the industry itself. Um, just on Christine's story about gaffers, when Sally Potter made The Gold Diggers in 1981, which was the first film by a British woman to have a budget of a million pounds, she said, I'm making it with a horizontal structure, three co-directors, and all of the crew will be women. And the union said, you can't because there aren't any women in any of our technical grades. Mm. None. So she found a woman who trained as an electrician and said, I'll train you as a spark. And the union threatened to shut production down because it was a high budget, high budget film. Um, so these stories keep coming round and they're about relation and they're about, if not quotas, changing the numbers, like Christine said, and changing the labor practices on set. And any angle that you start looking at, whether it's um, racialized exclusion, whether it's um, access for disabled workers, whether it's access for parents and carers, which brings up a lot of things about long hours, low pay, um, a lot of answers about why there's a glass ceiling, why so many women work as editors, as producers, because they're not on set, they're not. You start seeing that the demands of the film industry, the commercial film industry, are detrimental to health, mental health, um, all, all kinds of aspects of bodily well-being, including the right to have however you define your family life, the right to have a good sex life. You know, if you're shooting 16-hour days, six days a week, <laughs> you know, <laughs> something that no one in film school is saying, like, if you go into this job, you're not going to have a date for, like, 15 years. <laughs> 
unless, uh, unless you're succumbing to the sexual harassment on set, like that's your option. <laughs> And there is another way that, you know, the Hollywood machine that dominates global cinema is not the only way that films were made, even in the very beginning. You know, like, there were a lot of problems with the USSR, but they did work out some really good ways to make films early on, including, like, S. Bishop, one of the first women to direct, like, an epic, epic film. Um, so when you start looking into any question about how people work on set, when you start looking, and I don't mean to, I'm not making a joke about sexual harassment at all. Um, when you start looking at that, you can't look at it as a single issue. It opens questions about every aspect of how films are made and how much, as Christine said, we're asked to compromise, to lie to ourselves about, if we want to stay in an industry which tells us we have to be grateful to be in it. Mm. You know, and white, cis, able-bodied men are not told, if they're middle class in particular, to be grateful to be mm. in film. It's only the 99% the rest of us. You're, it, it's predicated on gratitude, it's predicated on reputation, it's predicated on um, nepotism, um, you know, hiring friends, not hiring for talent, hiring because they fit. So just by asking this question of like, where are the parents in British cinema? We ended up documenting all kinds of labor abuses and all kinds of refusals to address them because they're see it's seen as wasting money. You know, an efficient set is an abusive set. You know, and I'm, I'm not saying, that's not a joke, that is how the industry thinks. A domineering director-producer combo that delivers on time, even if it makes everyone ill, and they never work in the film industry again, is what the commercial industry wants. 60% of Danish um, film and TV workers have left since Netflix moved to Denmark because that used to be a socialized industry and then they were being told twice as much work in half as much time. Um, so, and particularly like people with families, people with children. So when we're talking about the female gaze, the feminist gaze, it begins with a political gaze. That's where Laura Mulvey's essay begins. It begins with the politics, going back to how we're taught to see, but also how that is made, who has power, and how they use it on set, and how they use it when they run festivals, and how they use it when they run production companies. To me, it's really, I'm sorry to sound like such an old-fashioned Marxist, but <laughs> you know, it is about the means of production, and it is about um, asking all these questions about how we work, and Celine is right. Other industries are on strike because these conditions are not acceptable. It's not acceptable to have to work three jobs. It's not acceptable to be abused by the people that you work with. Why not the film industry? You know, maybe that's where we have to start, is if everyone who was not an upper-class, white, cis, able-bodied man withdrew their labor from every aspect of the film art, and I mean food wagons, I mean sex work, I mean delivery bikers. What, what film industry would there be? I mean, front of house staff at cinemas. It, it couldn't function. So that's my, my take on the female day. <laughs> then all the cinemas would be empty and we could just have events like this every day and show like queer and trans films every day. <laughs> right? But first we have to strike.
Celine, uh, do you mind uh, to answer the question of um, feminist grammar? Because you in actually kind of invented it. Uh. <laughs> um, well, the thing is, this, this, um, I think what, what the article of Laura Murphy made happen and, and still is making happen is that you cease to be lonely with the feeling. I think that's how important that was. That suddenly she's speaking these words that the male gay like exists. That's, that's, that, that's mostly what's striking that you're like, oh, okay. Because, and also we know I'm French, so I'm brought up in this idea of the universal. We are obsessed with it. You know? Um, and you're basically betraying your country if you decide to actually challenge that uh, that notion. Um, so for me, it was really striking to understand that uh, universal is bullshit, you know, <laughs> um, uh, politically. Um, but then uh, we can't. The corpus of what would be the female gaze is only prototypes. So we can't actually look at it like something that would be, because it's only prototypes, either in the way things are made, in the ethics, in what's been shown, uh, in the budgets. So it's, there's not an economy of the female gaze. There's not, um, there's not, even, there's not even one culture. So it's, it's, uh, um, it's, um, it's just a co being con conscious that you have to think a lot about the language of cinema and, and, and be very, very, yeah, not submissive to even your own uh, reflex, in a way. Um, so it's, you can't actually define it because it's only made of, uh, yeah. Aspirations. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, just, it's like you have to be, you kind of have to, it's hard to, 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 to actually unfold this, that uh, you have to think more. You have to think more, you have to, and on all aspects, as you said. Um, so, it's, um, it's, for me, it, it starts with the writing, really, 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 the way, you know, to be more materialistic, not to be too theoretical. It's like, uh, it took me five years to write Portrait of a Lady on Fire because it's, uh, that's how long it took to actually understand what kind of, yeah, what kind of language, what, what would be the language of, of the film. And it was super hard because I was like, how can I, you know, how can I find tension? How can I make cinema without using this and this and that thing that comes to me quite easily and and also unlearn because in the end you should do what's easy for you. You shouldn't put yourself also in your position when you're trying to, you know, it's hard to invent new things. So in a way it's like, it's it's like also looking at your stream of conscience in the, in the process of writing because we all know how to, how to write. We all know how to write the patriarchal narrative everyone, more and more. Now you can write, you know, before you can, write, oh, I can write uh, something like Aristotle would, you know, and that's George Lucas. Now you all also Christopher Nolan, in a way, you know. So we're all better at this. You, now you know how to write TV series, you know about Cliffhanger, you know, you, you're very good writers. 
So you have to learn that. Um, but also to, to connect to what's easy for you. That's what I want to say. You know, it's not about finding this new architecture. You know, that's so impressive. Who could actually engage into that? So it's also a very modest process uh, of sort of sobriety. You know, it's, uh, that's why it's also linked to ecology. That's why it's so important that we think about that because this is all grooving together. Um, and, and to look at your own, uh, yeah, to look at, at how easy you can write uh, stuff that feels like writing uh, doesn't mean that then it should be hard to write stuff that feels like writing. I don't know if I'm clear. Not at all. It, it reminds me of what Christine said about time. That when you have to unlearn, it, you lose time because you're learning to trust yourself rather than the structures that you're given. Like, it's very easy to climb up on a structure when it's there, but to trust yourself, um, that's what takes the, the time. It's not that you have to reinvent some, you know, magical feminist way of, of doing and as you say it's connected to all sorts of seeing ecological seeing um you know black filmmakers have filmmakers have talked very powerfully about unlearning the white gaze and the colonial gaze as well and really it seems to me it's about learning to trust yourself and that means having friends and grown-ups if by grown-ups we also mean funders <laughs> and having having um, knowing there's an audience for your work um, and festivals that will get it to that audience without hostility. So learn, unlearning a lot of that second guessing of if I do this, someone will say no. If I try it like this, I'll have to explain it. If I try it like this, I'll be ashamed. Um, and that is when you're also under capitalism, so hard because it's time. Yeah. May I uh, add something to you? Uh, it's still me. <laughs> Feminist. Uh, You're closer and closer. Come and join us on stage. I'm taking the opportunity, sorry for having the mic all the time. Um, but you know, when, uh, when I was reading your, uh, the article with you in, uh, in the New Yorker about a new feminist grammar, uh, and, and actually you were quite explicit with uh, examples, for instance, when you talk about how to film um, intimacy, how to film female bodies, uh, not just female, but people who are getting, um, having sex together, kissing. And actually during this time I was editing my new film and I read it and I was next day, I was um, running in the editing room and actually really controlling what did I do, you know? Uh, and yeah, good luck for me. Um, <laughs> no, really, it was very important. Uh, what I want to say to that someone um, is finding the words for what many of us, I think, uh, already do. But uh, we are not so much aware that uh, we don't feel so good with uh, Many of the sex, I've seen so many sex scenes in movies and I'm so bored with it mm -hmm. because it has nothing to do with my experience and nothing to do with me. And nowadays I'm getting more angry uh, because of this. But when you make films yourself, then of course you sometimes have scenes where you think uh, 
it would make sense to show it because it's part of um, some kind of, you know, you want, you need it for the story. It's not to, you need it for the story, but uh, yeah, it's, but how to do it in a way that you feel good with it. And you, you really find very good words for it. And I don't want to make your words. I think uh, it's better for the audience that <laughs> you tell them how to cope with uh, this kind of body intimacy in your films. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's really, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, I don't know exactly what you have in mind about what I said precisely because I forget what I say a lot. <laughs> um, for me, it's really about being uncompromising in a way. So it's about being unapologetic, as you said, but it's also about being uncompromising with yourself. So for instance, like, I was really ignorant about how to do a sex scene. And I was wondering, should there be a sex scene in Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Because I was like, I don't want, I don't know how to do it. Really, I don't, because it's in the end, it's about, do I know where I want to put the camera? That's the big question. That's the only question. And most of the time I know, you know, and so sometimes I don't, so it means like, uh, I must, keep thinking about it. And so regarding the, the, this idea of uh, putting a sex in, then I had like, uh, I had to look for an idea uh, that would, uh, that I would like, and that would be fun to do, and that would be evocative. Um, so it's really an intellectual process. And I think, you know, sex scenes should be the most intellectual scenes. I mean, it's always an intellectual. Um, so it, you shouldn't, you shouldn't put it in any other place. You should have the same type of care, uh, in a way. Um, and so I, I had this idea of uh, a penetration that would uh, be true. Because I, that's how I engage in that process. I was like, okay, we always know that sex scenes are fake. Uh, so, and I want to have a feeling that it's true, so I'm going to show a true penetration of a finger under an armpit, and, and it will be, and it will be like a joke. So that was kind of the feeling that was looking, some truth and some humor. Uh, and, and the actresses, they were like, they loved the idea. They found it super fun. Uh, so, and if I hadn't found that idea, I wouldn't have put a sex scene, I must say. Um, and that's, uh, I think that's how you, you write. And when I say write, I'm not only talking about the script because, you know, a film is you keep writing it. That's, that's also why sometimes you can get wrong and then you will get it right because, thank God, sound editing, thank God, color grading, thanks God, uh, you know, resizing, thanks God. You know, all those tools, we have them. It's amazing that we can keep on writing and writing and writing. Um, but yeah, for me, it's really about uh, asking yourself the question very, very uh, deep until you find an answer. Um, and that's also time, uh, as, you, as you said. Um, now I'm in the process of another, uh, thinking about uh, another project, and I'm, uh, so I have new questions regarding uh, 
how I would portray sex, for instance. That's why I have trouble answering to, you, to your question about the past. I'm, I'm like, um, the next thing, and I'm not going to tell you, obviously, because I haven't, I haven't thought about it enough from, to, to actually formulate something. Um, but it's, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's really about having fun with the ideas and, and really think about cinema, about ideas grooving together. And those ideas, they are political, poetic, central, um, and, 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 it's, and it's about caring a lot. And I think that exactly, that's exactly how you connect to this idea of how a, a, an image of cinema feels. For me, it's, it's an image, usually, what we, we, we identify, we used to identify cinema with the quality of the image, which means some form of uh, technicity, uh, that you'll be, oh, this is cinema because this is 35, this is cinema because there's a lot of money, this is cinema because there is a star in it, this is cinema because uh, it's conflictual, this is cinema because... Uh, um, and, and I got lost. <laughs> and I got lost. What was I saying? Why, why was I engaging in this anaphoric uh, stuff? <laughs> I don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows but me. That's it. That's being a director. Nobody knows but you, but everybody. But you need other people to actually make it happen. <laughs> I, w I want to tell a Lizzie Borden story because Please, Celine me. mentioned Lizzie Borden, um, who named herself after the famous axe murderer. That is not her birth name, but she made a film called Born in Flames, which I think is the one maybe you wish you'd seen. And the film that she made after that is called Working Girls, and it's about sex workers. Um, and none of the actors in the film are well known. They were all cast for the film. And Lizzie worked with them and with sex workers to develop the film, which is really about time. So the, the main character is working as a sex worker because she's a photographer. And she's, she's in a queer relationship, they have a child, she needs money. So she's doing sex work and lying to her partner about it. Um, and the others are also there for economic reasons, to pay for college, to pay for childcare. And it's really a film about time and money. But Lizzie um, herself did sex work as part of the way of raising money to make the film. So the film is told from inside. And I think, in a way, that's what you're saying about filming a sex scene is to film it from inside, not outside. So, quit. I, I remember. You remember. <laughs> what I Lizzie Borden is the solution. <laughs> no, it's a, I mean, I was, was thinking about care. Like, for me, you have to feel that, that, that there is choice. And that's what we didn't felt when we were brainwashed, that this was cinema, this was universal, and it's very fetishistic, so, so fetishist, so it's reproductive. And there's the impunity. There's impunity. And I think there shouldn't be impunity, so I think it's about feeling that someone's looking, and it's not the character, it's the director, and it's not only the director, but it's the director, the director of photography. Like, you have to feel there's no impunity. You have to, that's, that's the gaze, that's, that's the political gaze, that you have to feel that someone's watching, and that is, that, that is the pleasure of cinema. That is the feeling of cinema. That's why, for instance, I enjoy studio shooting, which is like so not such a surprise for me. <laughs> because you know that it's been, that, it, that there's a choice, that, that, that everything has been chosen, and you kind of unveil it. 
uh, that's why I love animated film, and I think that's why animation is the only left cinema in the US right now, for instance, in Hollywood right now, because there's no impunity. Everything has been chosen, so you know that you are facing an illusion. And cinema is the art of the illusion, and we tend to forget that. And if we had to stand for that, that we are making, now I'm fully aware that I'm making an illusion, and that I'm endorsing that illusion with my crew. And so there's no more impunity, and you can feel that. Uh, and it's, and, 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 and so building maybe a, a feminist grammar of cinema is built, is, is that you trust, that's why for me, all the, I craft the beginning of my film as a pact between you and me, that you're not gonna trust me just because you've seen what I've done before. Each time it's like, we have to trust each other. So we build this language when you can feel that you can, okay, trust the film. Um, that your body can trust the film. For instance, in Petite Maman, this, I, for, the, for the first time, I really designed the film thinking about that because I wanted the film to be both uh, for kids and, and grown-ups. And you have to make that happen. It's not just uh, that it's like that. So I decided that I would put a scene where you would feel that. And it's just uh, 10 minutes after the beginning of the film. Uh, I wanted the kids and the grown-ups to both feel that they could trust the film, that the film would, would respect them uh, as an audience and as characters. So I wrote this scene where the mother puts the kids to sleep and the kids ask a question. And the mother says, well, you always ask a question when I put you to sleep. And so the grown-ups in the room, they're like, ha, 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 ha. And then the kid says, yeah, but that's when I see you. And then they go, <laughs> And suddenly, it's really to create in the room this moment where it goes like, and suddenly the bodies, they, are, they feel equally respected. So suddenly the hierarchy even between a parent and a kid disappears. And that's exactly the impact that I want the film to have. So I have to think about that and find, and it's like hypnosis, you know, it's a word that but suddenly you feel like, okay, I can trust that. So for me, it's really building this architecture of trust and care, which can seem a little bit, uh, I don't know, innocent, innocent or inoffensive in a way, but it's not because the impact is gonna be great, you know, like uh, strong. Um, and being in charge of the impact, I think, is, is a matter of responsibility. Because, you know, when there's violence everywhere, and suddenly you're like, you, you, it's just fun, you know, you, you don't care about the impact. And suddenly even the image of violence, they lose their impact, and they disconnect us from the actual violence that it is to be sitting through this image of violence. So... We have... Uh... A question? Yes, I'm waving at you because this is a perfect timing for my question. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> nice to meet you. Hello, I'm Marianne. Um, I'm also a cinematographer. And um, when we talk about feminist gays or, uh, or feminist grammar, I would love to talk more also about violence because personally I am so sick of seeing reproductions of very cruel violence on the screen like rape scenes, scenes where people are murdered or tortured. And for me, this uh, very violent uh, grammar is also a very um, kind of masculine grammar or male gaze kind of grammar. 
So um, I would be very interested. Uh, Christina already said something about it in the beginning, about war and about trying to find other images that don't show this whole machinery and this kind of almost heuristic aspect of it. I guess that's also something you were thinking of. And I would love to hear more about of the three of you maybe to this topic. Thank you. I put violence in my three first film and then I decided that I, I would stop. And uh, for me, I was really still engaging in this patriarchal language that I would like to, that had to, to subvert it. I still had to kind of engage in it, you know, also to show muscles. Um, and so I, I oppressed my characters just also to, uh, also to make a point, you know. And I, I used to think, well, you know, uh, if the mother in tomboy is super nice, then. Uh, what uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm betraying the fact that it's such a violent uh, journey, and now I don't believe at all in that anymore. You know, if I could edit my films again, I would get rid of it. Um, and it's not a, and I, and I like feeling that. I like that that it changed because it didn't feel good. It never felt good doing a violent scene. Never. I always hated it. I was sick, and I was like. Oh, I'm doing my job because I feel sick. <laughs> Terrible. And uh, the other day, because uh, um, my, my producer, she's a parent, and so, of course, uh, uh, kids are involved in our process. And a younger, I had never seen Tombo, he's like seven, and he watched the film and he told me, like, the mother is ruining the film. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, I agree, you're right. <laughs> and I used to defend her a lot. Well, you know, you defend your mother. But um, now I'm like, yeah, fully agree, fully agree. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And, and it hurts now, you know, when I think about that. And, and, I, I, and it, it's, that's why it's, a, it's such a process. That's why it's such a process, because you, it's, your intuition is that, you know, if it feels bad, then you shouldn't do it. But is it everyone, the whole culture is telling you that, you know, you should, and then you, dis, you, you, have, you, you give it some form of, you give a political value to that pain. It's also, of course, how you feel about yourself, and it's a process of growth uh, that, uh, that you see violence differently also, because you start to be auto-destructive. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, I, and then I decided that I would, get rid of conflict, even, in the process of dramaturgy, uh, which is uh, a step that, is, that puts you in a stage where you have to ask yourself really deep questions about writing. Uh, but it also opens a lot of uh, opportunity, and then it also it gives a lot of, it has a lot of impact on your life now. So, because it's linked, you know. Uh, that, that's why there's a lot of joy in this question, in, in this question, and that's also why there's a lot of joy in activism. Uh, they make it really hard. They make activism traumatic, but it's it shouldn't be. It's not part of it at all. It's uh, and it's the same with the language of cinema. It's so easy. it's really beautiful to explore that. And you know, I have like angst when I think and shame also when I think of uh, some path I took that where. Yeah, not not aware enough that I didn't work enough on myself, also, um, and that also there was that pressure to exist. 
in that culture, so that violence had to, had to be there, so that you know even the film could be called a film in a way, uh, and that there could be a, a dynamic, a cathartic dynamic. And I don't believe that at all now. I think it's uh, it's saving their ass as always. It's saving their face. It's also portraying them as cat because of course, as you you you. I try to have empathy for all situations when I shoot them and edit them. So then you're kind of saving the face of violence also. Um, so we should really try to get rid of it, like totally. Like uh, I think it's it's it also it's also better for the art, you know, um, because it creates new situation. Um, and suddenly your scenes they kind of begin where they would end for any other writer, because his first scene is a good ne negotiation. It's like, I want this, I won't give it to you. Well, if you do this, then, you know, Water Lilies, my first film, is based on this kind of negotiation. I want to get in the pool. Well, uh, I want to hang out with my boyfriend, so if you help me, you'll get in the pool. Okay, and it works, you know. It's, it's those power dynamics, quite, quite true, of course, to what we felt in teenagehood and stuff like that, but uh, suddenly, if it's like, I want to get in the pool, okay, get in the pool. It's like, okay, so that's the beginning of the scene. <laughs> that's the beginning of the scene. So then it brings new rhythm to your narrative because also you don't have the same bridges from one scene to another. So new rhythm. Uh, and it engages your whole film into a, a more, I think, in uh, uh, a moral process that is more alive, innovative, and 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 even just better to, to at every level, because then every step is more uh, light-hearted also, you know? Um. It makes me think that Laura Mulvey also says, sadism demands a story. So part of what she's talking about with the male gaze is not just, it's the frame, but the narrative structure. And the narrative structure is represents sadism punishment, she's not talking about the kink, but on screen in order to punish the audience for enjoying cinema. So we live in an anti-pleasure culture because of the dominant religion in Europe, the dominant colonial religion. Cinema is part of that mechanism of punishing us for having pleasure, having bodies, having joy. Um, including, you know, in something like Quo Vadis Ida, which tells a story of war without indulging, as you said, in the spectacular so, sort of visual pleasures of war, but finds those small moments of compassion and care and that tell, reminds us that that's beautiful and that we can see beauty when we're watching, you know, a story that unpacks real horrors because the, the violence we see on screen isn't real. That's part of why some, you know, it can be enjoyed is the frisson of illusion is also telling us this is great makeup, this is great cinematography, this is great CGI. And then when it comes to addressing what we could call real violence, it's elided. Um, so I think uh, unpicking this nature of narrative sadism and all its structures and how we tell stories about films, about which films are valuable as well, is, is so important. And I, I sort of want to... Completely new thinking. Yeah. It's completely... I mean, I'm totally fascinated. <laughs> no, no, because it's really a new thinking. Complete... I mean, you have to throw 
really everything away. And, to, and with complete new, you know, looking at it, building the narrative or the dramaturgy is completely, you know, because of course dramaturgy, I mean, there's an expert. And, I know, but no, but for me, no, I know, but it is a new thinking, you know, it's a complete, how can I say, annoying. So when you and Yasmila are talking, is this the kind of thing you're talking about? No, I mean, I mean, Kuvadis was more from the dramaturgy, it has much more classical elements, I would say. But with Kati Residat, she's a screenwriter, I'm discussing a lot about the structures. I mean, she's an expert for you know, looking for new dramaturg structures because it's a new kind of thinking, you know, it's not just... I just want to say it's not new. Yeah, <laughs> for me it's, you are it's very old. It's, it's very, very old. old, I know it's very old, but, but it's, we've been but brainwashed. We don't see yeah. it so much. It's the oldest. Oh. You, you, the one that the, the formulation of that that I prefer is the one that of uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, that she she speaks about the fact that uh, it's a very small text that you can find and you, can, you should read it. That she she talks about how it's always been about the weapon and the weapon has structured the story and so the hero with the weapon and she's like no it should be about the contentment it should be about the battle. And, and I think of it, my idea of it, it should be as a pocket. My, I'm obsessed with pockets. But I, I always think, but sometimes you can resolve things like that. I'm always like, I want to make pocket films, which means I want to make a film that you can put in your pocket and go back home and think about it. And so it should be small because it should fit your pocket. And this idea of the, if the hero is not, if the, 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 the object is, that is at the center is not the weapon but the bottle, then what is going to be the story? And that's and it connects us to this uh, another mythology that hasn't been transmitted. That is a matriarchal mythology. I mean, I don't know what to call it because it hasn't been transmitted. But and I think that when we even when we have these ideas that are original, because we just it's like the story or the scene. Like each time I feel like I have an idea that it's new. I know. I feel also that it's not. And I think that's the most beautiful feeling, that yeah. you feel like, oh, this is when I, the idea of a petite maman was like, oh, a little girl hanging out with her mother at the same age. I was like, wow, I was like, this is such an old idea. This is mythological. And, I, and, I, and also that's why you have to be modest with these ideas, because like, you're like, oh, it's, it's not been transmitted, but I'm lucky enough to connect to it. So I'm going to tell my version of it. I'm going to treat it as a myth. I'm not going to drain it. I'm not going to make back to the future uh, for little girls. I'm going to put my personal question in it, and I'm going to modestly craft it around that. And like, because I, I think like, oh, there could be like dozens of versions of this, you know? So it's also modesty and connecting to this idea that it's, uh, that of course, as our knowledge, our stories haven't been transmitted to us, uh, under any other form than poems. That's, what, that's our archives, that's Sappho, you know, it's fragment. Um, so they I also arrive like that. They I also think it's, arrive it's, like it's that. the absolutely perfect uh, introduction to what we uh, will see uh, this night because we will actually show your film and we will have a talk later on. Um, so it was a great pleasure actually listening to you uh, to the audience, we have a break now. I hope uh, we see a lot of you.
Uh, it's 6.30 at the Nina Menkes film Brainwashed. Actually, you will see what happened to us and the uh, Zoom talk with her. Uh, and thanks so much for this wonderful conversation to all of you, Christine, Celine, and so. Thank you. I, I want to add something that also tomorrow the program continues. We have two films tonight and we have tomorrow again a panel on queer feministic perspectives and we have the film Wet Sand. With, from Elena Naveriani. She's also here for a talk and on the panel tomorrow. And please join us also for this. And yeah, thank you very much. Feminist Perspectives, a podcast about feminist film discourse, hosted by Die RegisseurInnen, Association of Solidary Filmmakers, and FC Gloria, Frauenvernetzung Film. <laughs>